This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Making Our Way in Life. J. Matthew Shumway, a BYU professor of geography, when this devotional was given, will give his message entitled Our Journey Through Mortality. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here today. No, really, I, I am. I love words and word origins. One of my favorite words is serendipity because it just kind of rolls off the tongue. I know it's strange, but I get, I get a great deal of pleasure from saying certain words, and serendipity is one of those. Serendipity is defined as the occurrence and development of events by chance in a beneficial way. Its origin is attributed to Horace Walpole, an English poet and writer who coined the term from the heroes of the fairy tale, the three princes of Serendip, who, quote, were always making discoveries by accidents and sagacity of things they were not in quest of. According to Richard Boyle, the three princes of Serendip is an old Persian or possibly Indian fairy tale about three princes from Serendip who, having been taught by the wisest men in the kingdom, were sent by their father on a mission of observation. They discovered things by good fortune and sagacity, or discernment and wisdom. For example, in one part, called the camel story, the three princes use trace clues to precisely identify a camel they have never seen that has been lost by its driver. When the driver asks if they have seen the camel, they say no, but then they ask the driver if his camel is lame, blind in one eye, missing a tooth, carrying a pregnant maiden, and bearing honey on one side and butter on the other. The driver is astonished that they could know that much about his camel, having never seen it, and he eventually accuses them of stealing the camel and has them arrested. When they are brought before the emperor, he asks them how they knew about the camel, and they explain how they deduce the characteristics of the camel from simple observations. The emperor is so impressed with their wisdom and judgment that he not only spares their lives, he appoints them as his advisors and rewards them. The rewards, which were unsought, came serendipitously, not because they had been seeking them, but because they were in the right place at the right time doing the right things. This reminds me of a statement expressed by former BYU professor and poet Arthur Henry King in his book, The Abundance of the Heart, where he states, If we aim at self-fulfillment, we shall never be fulfilled. If we aim at education, we shall never become educated. If we aim at salvation, we shall never be saved. These things are indirect, supreme results of doing something else. And the something else is service. It is righteousness. It is trying to do the right thing the thing that needs to be done at each moment. I love this quote. I love it for two reasons. First, the sentiment it portrays focuses on process or means and not ends. When I was an undergraduate student here many years ago, I took a summer job working for a very wealthy man. He was an interesting guy and and one that I must admit I did not like very much. However, he taught me something I have never forgotten, and like Arthur Henry King, it had to do more with process and outcomes. At one point in our orientation, someone asked him what he was worth or how much money he made. He took this opportunity to teach us a lesson. He told us that he had only a vague idea of how much he was worth or how much money he made, as that neither of those were his primary goals. His goal was to deliver the best product in the most efficient way. He said that if you focus on the process, then the ends will come. In this case, the process was delivering a product and the end was a high income. 
I decided to try and apply that principle to my schooling. Instead of focusing on the and, grades, I would focus on the process, learning. I determined that if I could go into every class with the attitude that I was going to learn as much as possible, put forth the effort to do so, then I would be happy with whatever the outcome. Although I still had a vague idea of how I did in every class, I never again picked up my report card to see my final grades. And those were in the days when you had to pick up your report cards. Uh, did I get an A in every class? No. Were there classes that I was frustrated with, where I didn't particularly like the way a professor taught, or where I accidentally fell asleep in an 8 a.m. art history class because they always turned out the lights? Yes. And by the way, I feel bad about falling asleep in that class to this day, especially when I went to the exams. My grades did improve, but what I really gained was not improved grades, but an increased love of learning and freedom from worrying about whether or not I would be judged as good enough. The second reason I like this quote is at the end where it says, The thing that needs to be done in each moment. Life, for me, is just a series of moments. Most of these are normal, everyday moments that are difficult to differentiate one from the other. Moments that we rarely reflect on or even notice. Nevertheless, there are moments in life where, like the three princes of Serendip, we are in the right place at the right time and where we need to do the right thing. I enjoy watching college football, and I have often heard it said that the outcome of a close and evenly matched game will be determined by just a few plays. If the players knew what those plays were in advance, they could specifically prepare for them and put forth their best effort on just those plays. But they don't know what plays they will be, and because of that uncertainty, it is necessary for them to be fully prepared and to put forth their best effort all of the time to be in the right place at the right time doing the right thing in order to have the biggest impact. So those three or four plays in a game, or those five or ten or a hundred moments in life, will determine to a large extent the outcome. And in many cases, we will not know what the plays or moments were until we can look back and analyze what happened. And when we do the analysis, we may find that it wasn't the big plays or moments that made the most difference. President Hinckley, in the book Stand a Little Taller, said, quote, The course of our lives is seldom determined by great life-altering decisions. Our direction is often set by the, <clears throat> set by the small day-to-day -day choices that chart the track on which we run. This is the substance of our lives, making choices. End quote. The choices we make fill in the details of our lives and determine who we will become. In ancient times, cartographers often labeled areas, large areas on their maps, as terra incognita, or places unknown, because while they may have had a broad outline of the continents, they had little or no information on the details within. Similarly, as members of the Church, we have a broad outline of a spiritual map that provides information on where we came from and why we are here and where we want to end up. This map is called the Plan of Salvation. It is within the Plan of Salvation that our lives are given and we obtain meaning. I can't imagine not having such a blueprint for this life and I will be forever grateful for the restoration of the gospel, for the Prophet Joseph Smith, my ancestors who had the courage and fortitude to join the Church, and my parents who taught me in the language and learning of the gospel. However, while a great plan of happiness does provide the broad outlines of where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going, the details are less clear. Even with the insights gained from patriarchal blessings, from current revelation, from modern-day prophets and apostles, we are still left with the terra incognita. I believe that most of us here today, for most of us here today, our spiritual maps have large territories labeled places unknown. That is, we have some idea of the beginning and know where we want to end up, but the question is, 
How do we get there? In a general sense, we do as Mormon counsel in 927. He said, O then, despise not and wonder not, but hearken unto the words of the Lord and ask the Father in the name of Jesus, for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Doubt not, but be believing, and begin as in times of old, and come unto the Lord with all your heart, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. So how do we work out, or keeping with the metaphor I've been using, how do we map out our salvation? How do we prepare for those moments in our lives when everything hangs in the balance, especially given the uncertainty of not knowing which moments will be the most important? How do we keep our perspective focused on the process of living the gospel? How do we integrate our lives into the gospel, their gospel into our lives in such a way that doing what's right at all times and in all places becomes habit? I believe that while the underlying principles are the same for all of us, the details will vary as we each journey into those unknown places and begin to fill in the details of our maps. So as you continue on your journey in this life, I have a few suggestions that may help. First, show up. Someone once asked the director-actor Woody Allen why he was so successful, and he told them that 80% of his success could be attributed to just showing up. I believe that what he meant, or at least how I interpreted it, was not just that he was there, but he was there with the right attitude, as someone who was willing to learn, willing to work, willing to start something that may be difficult, and then coming back the next day knowing that it would be difficult. In my current stake, our welfare assignment is going out to the church dairy farm and doing whatever is asked. This includes moving the cows from one pen to another, branding, dehorning, fixing up, tearing down, cleaning, painting, and so forth. It's not generally something most of us look forward to with great anticipation. But afterwards, it's something we always look back on warmly. When we received our new state calendar in December, we noticed that our ward's first assignment was on Saturday, January 3rd. This was a relatively short notice and over a holiday weekend. When we have the assignment, we usually meet at the church about 7.15, have some donuts and hot chocolate. It's always amazing what the youth will do for a donut. They don't know what's coming. And head out about 7.30. We reach the farm about 8 and work for four hours. Some of you probably weren't in the valley on January 3rd, but it snowed the previous night. And when we woke up, up in Elk Ridge, we had close to a foot of snow on the ground. And it was cold. Now, none of the bishopric was able to go on this particular assignment. Dang it. And uh, we were worried whether or not we would have anybody show up. But show up they did. We had 17 people show up, which is about what we always get. But that seemed like a lot for such a cold and snowy day on a holiday weekend. It was later reported to us by the young men's president that the manager of the farm told him, any time he sees a ward is coming from Elk Ridge, he never worries because he knows that people from those wards show up ready and willing to work. I felt, probably somewhat unrighteously, proud of my ward for showing up that day. Showing up in this sense equates to doing. One of my favorite scriptures is the entire book of James because it's about doing. For example, in James 1, 22-25, James says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Why is it so important that we show up? Does God really need us to do his will or his works? So why is it so important? 
because, as with all that God commands, He does it for our benefit. It is through doing the Word that we become converted. In a recent missive to all of the faculty and staff from John Tanner, he wrote the following, quote, In Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wonders about why we are commanded by God to praise Him. What satisfaction can God possibly receive from our praises? Lewis then answers his own question in a way that I had never thought of before. He said, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise—lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed." I had also never thought of praise in this way before, and as I started to ponder it, I had one of those moments, few and far between, when clarity struck. Everything God asks us to do is for our benefit, not His. I started to understand better King Benjamin's address to his people concerning how we are unprofitable servants. Because even when we do what is right for the right reasons, neither seeking nor wanting any reward, we are blessed because the very act of doing what is right changes who we are for the better. We become more Christ-like, which prepares us for eternal life, the greatest of all of God's blessings. Somehow, and for some reason, I always thought that such blessings were exogenous to the process, but they are not. To me, this is an example of heavenly serendipity receiving a reward that was not sought because we were in the right place we needed to be at the time we needed to be there, doing what was right. Christ also taught this principle when he said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The knowing doesn't come in some intellectual way. It comes by changing who we are. I believe this is what Alma was talking about in Alma 5.14 when he said, And now, behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the Church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received His image in your countenances? Have ye experienced His mighty change in your hearts? Conversion to Christ comes through the mighty change in our hearts, and the mighty change in our hearts can only come from doing His will. Thus, my first suggestion is to show up. Second, recognize and remember. Later in chapter 5, Alma asked members of the Church, And now, behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? One of the things I learned as I went through graduate school and since I've been teaching here at BYU is that we sometimes lean too much to our own understanding. Nephi warned us of this in 2 Nephi 9.28. O that cunning plan of the evil one! O the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men! When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. It is clear that from everything that the Church says about education, that Heavenly Father values an educated people. We have been told in Scripture and repeatedly by prophets in this dispensation that we should gain as much education as possible. Lifelong learning is good. I don't believe there is ever too much learning or too much education, but we also need to be careful that our education profiteth us not.
simplifying it somewhat, I think that learning can have two outcomes for our spiritual journey here. First, it can humble us. I have been amazed that the more I learn, the more I don't know. And students in my class are not so amazed. But that's nice. <laughs> Learning does require and lead to questioning, but it can do so in a way that is not destructive of one's faith. A more dangerous outcome of learning is that it can lead to hubris, to a discounting of eternal truths because they seem quaint or outdated, to a trusting in the arm of flesh rather than what current prophets and apostles tell us, to dismissing as coincidence those tender mercies that we receive from the Lord. In a talk given by Elder Bruce C. Hafen, he recounts the following story. Quote, a few years ago, a university student related to his priesthood quorum a boyhood experience that happened just after he had been ordained a deacon in the Aaronic Priesthood. He had lived on a farm and had been promised that a calf about to be born would be his very own to raise. One summer morning when his parents were away, he was working in the barn when the expectant cow began to calf prematurely. He watched in great amazement as the little calf was born, and then, without warning, the mother cow suddenly rolled over the calf. She was trying to kill it. In his heart, he cried out to the Lord for help. Not thinking about how much more the cow weighed than he did, he pushed on her with all of his strength and somehow moved her away. He picked up the lifeless calf in his arms and, brokenhearted, looked at it, the tears running down his cheeks. Then he remembered that he now held the priesthood and had every right to pray for additional help. So he prayed from the depths of his boyish, believing heart. Before long, the little animal began breathing again. He knew his prayer had been heard. After relating this story, the tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, Brethren, I tell you that story because I don't think I would do now what I did then. Now that I am older, less naive, and more experienced, I know better than to expect help in that kind of situation. I am not sure I would believe now, even if I relived that experience, that the calf's survival was anything more than a coincidence. I don't understand what has happened to me since that time, but I sense that something has gone wrong. Is it any wonder that Christ taught us we have to be as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven? I do not believe that the fellow in this story is alone in feeling the way he does. Too many of us sense that something has gone wrong in our lives. Why do we stop believing? Why aren't the signs and signals from God clearer? Doesn't God want us to know for a surety? Why should we have to struggle with discerning between God's power and simple coincidence? Maybe a better question is, would a more direct manifestation of God's power cause us to believe in Him? And would that not eliminate our agency? In a previous mentioned article, Elder Hafen put it this way, quote, The Lord has used the highly visible forms of His power so sparingly, enough to leave us with clear witnesses, but not enough to compel us to believe. What a careful balance has been struck between too much and not enough in the manifestations of divine power. How essential, then, to be willing to recognize the quiet evidences for what they are. My second suggestion is to learn to recognize the hand of the Lord in your life, the whisperings of the Spirit that can and will guide and direct your path, and to remember with childlike innocence those coincidences that brought you closer to God. Third, enjoy the journey. Back to serendipity for a minute. John Barth, in his book, The Last Voyage of Somebody the Sailor, said, You don't reach serendip by plotting a course for it. You have to set out in good faith for elsewhere and lose your bearings serendipitously. I'm afraid that I was one of those people who set out for serendip and never seemed to get there. 
I thought that as soon as I reached the next milestone in my life, I would be happy. As soon as I graduated from college, or as soon as I got married, as soon as I finished graduate school, or finished my dissertation, as soon as I got my first real job, and so forth. And one beautiful spring day, late in the day, I was walking down the stairs towards the Richards Building, enjoying a spectacular sunset, and I had an epiphany. This was my life, and it wasn't getting any better than it is now. A spirit whispered to me to quit looking forward to what might be and start making do with what is. As I stood there feeling dumbfounded, I literally felt this enormous weight lift from my shoulders. Now, I would imagine if you ask people who know me, they will probably wonder if I have, in fact, changed. But I have. I have been blessed in my life far beyond anything I actually planned for. Trying to do the right thing in places I never planned on being has given me unsought-after rewards so great that I am continually amazed at how the Lord has blessed my life. Standing on those stairs, I realized that I had found serendip and didn't even know it. For the first time in a long time, I felt at peace with who I was, with what I was doing, and with where I was. I knew then, and have had it confirmed many times since, that I am supposed to be here doing what I am doing, although I do think I will be able to enjoy it much longer when I am no longer department chair. Hint, hint. <clears throat> True joy comes from preparing to make and then making the right choices in the right places at the right time, and then not worrying about what might or might not happen. In a recent talk by Elder Worthlin, he told the following story about Elder Matthew Calley. Quote, when Elder Matthew Calley was first called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, President J. Reuben Clark invited him into his office and counseled with him about his new assignment. President Clark was one of the great leaders and thinkers of the Church. He left a post as the United States Ambassador to Mexico to accept a position in the First Presidency of the Church. He was a man long accustomed to bearing the weight of heavy responsibility. As the meeting between Elder Cowley and President Clark drew to a close, President Clark said, Now, my boy, kid, President Clark called all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve kid, Now, kid, don't forget Rule 6. Elder Cowley asked, What's Rule 6? President Clark said, Don't take yourself too darn seriously. Elder Cowley asked, well, What are the other five? President Clark said, There aren't any. <laughs> Life is a serious business, but not so serious that we should not enjoy it. Take the opportunities that have been given to us and make the most of them. And as Elder Worthland counseled in his last conference address, learn how to laugh. So my third suggestion is to enjoy the journey. Finally, endure to the end. In Lehi's vision of the tree of life, the path to the tree is straight and narrow. I don't know about you, but I've always envisioned the path as being on relatively flat terrain. And while the scriptures tell us time and again that the path is straight and narrow, it doesn't say anything about it being level. If my experience is any indication, you will be going down some steep inclines, up some rugged ravines, and across some raging rivers. It's not just the mists of darkness make it difficult to see the path. The path you are on will not always be smooth or level, and your journey will not always be easy. Nevertheless, staying on the path is the only way back to our Heavenly Father. And I want to be able to say, as Paul told Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Enduring to the end means remaining faithful to the laws and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout your life and is a fundamental requirement for salvation in the kingdom of God. Enduring to the end is not just a matter of passively tolerating life's difficult circumstances. It requires faithfulness to the end. Obviously, this is not an easy task, but it was never meant to be easy. 
Our life's journey is intended to be difficult, challenging, and ultimately refining. Otherwise, we would not be pure enough to return and live with our Father in heaven and receive His eternal blessings. So when you get to the end of your rope, don't let go. Tie a knot and hang on until help can come. And I promise, help always comes. Any time that I start to dwell on my difficulties in life—and I have teenage children, so I have lots of difficulties—my mind turns to Joseph Smith's experience in Liberty Jail and what the Lord told him. These few verses simultaneously frighten me, make me feel guilty for dwelling on my inadequacies and tribulations, but ultimately give me hope. In Doctrine and Covenants 122, 5-7, it reads, If thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in perils among false brethren, if thou art in perils among robbers, if thou art in perils by land or by sea, if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and if with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and of thine offspring and thine elder son, sorry, although but six years of age shall cling to thy garments and shall say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? O oh, my father, what are the men going to do with you? And if then he shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged to prison, and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the Lamb, and if thou shouldest be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Wow. Can't you just feel the weight of all that and the world pushing down on Joseph Smith? Just reading that passage makes me grateful for my relatively insignificant problems, and I'm pretty sure I don't want that much experience in life. Nevertheless, it is through such refiner's fire that the Lord prepares us for those moments in our lives when we will have to stand strong, when we will have to keep the faith, when we will have to endure. We don't know when those moments will be, so we will need to, like a good scout, be prepared. Be prepared so that you can serve the Lord in those moments that will determine your fate. I believe that if we endure our experiences well, then the suffering, the pain, the uncertainty, which are but for a small moment, will prepare us for greater things. In verse, eight, <clears throat> in verse 8 of the same section, the Lord gives us some more perspective when He states, The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than He? How can we not endure our short and relatively painless experiences when compared with Christ's incomprehensible suffering? Maybe we should think of it a little differently. Jesus Christ suffered greatly because He had to pay the price for all sin. And because He suffered for us, He understands our suffering, our pain, our grief. I believe that some of the experiences we have are so that we may have increased empathy. Once you have traveled the steep and rocky slopes on the path of life, your ability to help others safely negotiate the path increases, and God can use you. Finally, in verse 9, I once again feel hope. Therefore, hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee. For their bounds are set, they cannot pass. Thy days are known, and thy numbers shall not be numbered less. 
Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. We really are here in mortality for such a short time. Knowing the plan of salvation is real will help keep the troubles, disappointments, heartaches, and trials we have in a proper perspective, an eternal perspective, a perspective that gives us hope in salvation through Jesus Christ. Please know that God loves you. He wants you to succeed, and He will be with you forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Making Our Way in Life. J. Matthew Shumway gave his devotional entitled Our Journey Through Mortality. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.